through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say Greetings, and welcome to the seventh edition of Women's Liberation Radio News. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier that women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse and ideas we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, and most politics around the world, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. This is Jenna DeCuardo. I'm a sound designer and audio producer from the Northeastern United States. I'm an environmentalist, and I believe solidarity and intersectionality are key in women's liberation. Today's program will focus on the U.S. presidential election and feminism in politics. We will hear from Cindy Sheehan, Code Pink anti-war activist and 2008 candidate for U.S. Congress, Jill Stein, Green Party presidential candidate, and Samantha Berg, direct action advocate and critic of U.S. electoral politics. Here now are WLRN's headlines for November 3rd, 2016, as read by Sekhmet Shiaul. On October 11th, over 70,000 women marched against femicide in Rosario in the Santa Fe region of Argentina for the 31st National Women's Meeting. The Argentina Independent reports that, quote, though the protest was nonviolent apart from a few participants who threw bottles, the police fired rubber bullets and tear gas into the crowd, injuring several journalists and participants, unquote. In 2012, feminists successfully lobbied the government to pass a law demanding life sentences for those convicted of femicide, but women are still fighting. As Ada Beatriz Rico told Al Jazeera journalists this June, quote, We find that a woman is killed due to gender-based violence every 31 hours in our country, unquote. Rico is president of the women's rights group La Casa del Encuentro. Sabrina Cartabia, one of the organizers of the march, told The Guardian, quote, We are saying enough. We won't go back to being submissive, and we won't tolerate any more of the misogyny or violence that all us women have to deal with. This violence is trying to teach us a lesson. It wants to put us back in a traditional role into which we don't fit anymore. It's not a specific blow by a specific man against one woman in particular. It's a message to all women to return to our stereotypical roles, unquote. On October 19th, women across Argentina and neighboring countries organized a strike against male violence. Organizers wrote, quote, In your office, school, hospital, law court, newsroom, shop, factory, or wherever you are working, stop for an hour to demand no more machista violence. Unquote. Thousands of women participated. These actions follow the October 8th murder of 16-year-old Lucia Perez in Mar del Plata, Argentina. Lucia was tortured, raped, and killed by two men. 
after Australian doctor Magdalena Simonis from the University of Melbourne began hearing from more and more female patients about their interest in mutilating surgeries to change the shape and appearance of their genitals, she decided to find out what other general practitioners had to say about the issue. She conducted the first ever large study of how GPs are experiencing the boom in what is euphemistically called female genital cosmetic surgery. The results were published on September 26th in the open access medical journal BMJ. Dr. Simonis found that over half of the practitioners studied had encountered female patients who were interested in surgically altering their genitals. With more than 1,500 labiaplasties performed in 2013 in Australia alone, Dr. Simonis points to online pornography as a main causal factor in this trend. After a three-year investigation, Carl Ferrer, the 55-year-old male CEO of Backpage.com, which lists classified ads for prostituted women and girls, has been charged with pimping of a minor and conspiracy to commit pimping. Backpage.com had been raking in over $9 million a month from prostitution ads alone. Douglas Perry, the Spokane, Washington serial killer, who now considers himself a woman named Donna, appeared in court on October 13th. Perry is on trial for the 1990 murders of three women, Yolanda Sapp, Kathleen Brisboy, and Nikki Lowe, who were prostituted. Douglas's M.O. was to rape the victim, shoot her in the head, and then dump the body in the Spokane River. Although there is physical evidence linking him to all three murders, Perry insists that it was Douglas, not his fantasy persona Donna, who committed the violent acts against these women. In Lowerville, Iowa, Marissa Miaconda Cummings is searching for the pipeline worker who called out how much for the little girl as her daughter marched by him during a protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline. The incident occurred on October 15th at 2 in the afternoon in front of dozens of witnesses and was recorded on video. But when Marissa reported the male worker to the police, she was informed that the district attorney would not press charges against him. In a statement, Marissa said, quote, the comment from the pipeline worker caused emotional trauma to my daughter and references sex trafficking occurring throughout North Dakota and Indian country as a result of the oil industry. My daughter was targeted as a woman of color. I am a member of the Omaha tribe and the pipeline in Iowa is on our historic homelands. The Mississippi and Missouri rivers are sacred to the Omaha and a part of our history. It is my sacred duty to protect our earth mother and water sources. I had my daughter at my side to protect our water. My daughter should not have been exposed to obscene or predatory remarks. We will not stand for people targeting women. We will not stand for the destruction of our earth mother and life-giving water." Unquote. On October 7th, the Washington Post released a tape from 2005 showing Donald Trump, the Republican nominee for the presidency of the United States, admitting to groping women by the vulva and getting away with it because, quote, when you're a star, they let you do it, unquote. In response, thousands of women took to social media to share their own stories of being groped and raped by men, some as children. Trump's other misogynistic comments include many about the sexual attractiveness of his own daughter, Ivanka, references to Megyn Kelly as a bimbo, and a series of insults hurled at lesbian comedian Rosie O'Donnell, who he said was a degenerate and a slob with a fat, ugly face. In the wake of the release of the groping confession, seven women have come forward publicly to accuse Trump of groping or kissing them without consent in the past. In response to one victim, Trump mocked her appearance to supporters at his rally, claiming, quote, she would not have been my first choice, unquote. On October 17th, Trump tweeted, quote, can't believe these totally phony stories, 100% made up by women, unquote. Despite his dismissal of these accusers, Trump attempted to attack his opponent, Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton, by inviting victims of her husband, Bill Clinton, to the second presidential debate, including Juanita Broderick, who was raped by Bill Clinton in 1978. 
In December, a month after the American people vote for president, Donald Trump will appear in civil court to defend himself against allegations that he raped a 13-year-old girl in 1994 at a party thrown by his confirmed friend Jerry Epstein, the billionaire convicted child rapist. Epstein, who was a registered level 3 sex offender, was also friends with Bill Clinton, who was accused of having raped girls at these same parties. Bill Clinton and Donald Trump have admitted to being friends for years. Trump was also accused of rape by his former wife, Ivana Trump, during their 1991 divorce, to which his lawyer, Michael Cohen, special counsel at the Trump Organization, replied, quote, Of course, understand that by the very definition, you can't rape your spouse, unquote. In reality, the New York marital rape exemption had ended years earlier in 1984 after significant public pressure from women. Female Erasure, What You Need to Know About Gender Politics, War on Women, the Female Sex, and Human Rights, was released on October 21st. Edited by Ruth Barrett, Female Erasure is a dynamic collection of diverse voices speaking out against gender identity politics, exposing the origins and harmful effects of transgender ideology on the lives of women and children today. Contributors include Sheila Jeffries, Lear Keith, Patricia McFadden, and Maya Dillard-Smith. Go to femaleerasure.com for more information. Artemis Singers, Chicago's Lesbian Feminist Chorus presents Wanting the Music, a choral musical of the Michigan Festival, playing in Chicago on January 28th and 29th. Tickets are available online at www.artemiswantingthemusic.brownpapertickets.com. Wanting the Music is a new musical based on the Michigan Women's Music Festival. This historic festival took place in the woods of Michigan from 1976 to 2015. The musical follows the lives of two lesbians who see each other at the festival over the course of many years. The chorus will sing songs that were sung at Michigan, while the actors will sing original songs and live through some Midwest lesbian history. Thistle Patterson spoke recently to Lorraine Edwards, Artemis singer and the musical's playwright. She asked Edwards what motivated her writing. The thing that I'd like to say is that, you know, we're very committed here to making sure that lesbians don't disappear. And this is part of that initiative. You know, it's like we're a lesbian feminist chorus, and we're very aware that lesbians are being disappeared. And so this is a way of reminding the world that we still exist. Here we are. You know, so... The musical focuses on the highlights, celebrations, and development of lesbian relationships at Mitchfest. Tickets are available online at www.artemiswantingthemusic.brownpapertickets.com. Wanting the Music will be performed at the Irish American Heritage Center in Chicago on January 28th and 29th, 2017. One of the most so-called left-wing parties in Brazil, PSOL, Partido Social Democrata, Social Democratic Party, calls itself pro-women and supposedly aims to increase female participation in Brazilian politics, where women make up only 9.5% of total Congress representatives. But this same party disobeyed the law requiring at least 20% of their ads on TV and radio to broadcast women. When it comes to municipal elections, PSOL has the highest number of transgender candidates, 82 trans women, biologically male, and 2 trans men, biologically female. The Brazilian government requires that 30% of municipal candidates be women, and several of the trans women in the party started an appeal in court to be able to run under the women's quota. Most of them won the appeal and now occupy positions reserved for women in Brazilian elections. Last week, the Obama administration moved to dismiss Wolf's complaint in the case of the Women's Liberation Front versus the United States, a landmark case that argues for the rights of girls and women to bodily privacy. 
Wolf's complaint argues that the administration's redefinition of sex to mean gender identity for Title IX purposes violates the Administrative Procedure Act and women's constitutional right to bodily privacy. The Supreme Court has also granted certiorari in the Glowchester v. Gigi case, where a girl who identifies as a trans boy is demanding access to the boys' restroom, and several boys have complained that her use of the boys' room violates their right to privacy. Wolf filed a friend-of-the-court brief in favor of granting cert in that case. The Women's Liberation Front is the only organization involved in the ongoing legal battles regarding gender identity that is specifically standing up for the rights of women and girls. To donate to the legal fund for these historic landmark cases, visit womensliberationfront.org. And here now is Elizabeth McCune with a mini-report on the current major U.S. presidential candidates. I'm going to name just a few important health and human rights topics for comparison and tell you the stance of each major candidate, Clinton, Trump, Stein, and Johnson, for the U.S. election. When it comes to medical marijuana, all candidates seem to be for it. Full decriminalization of the plant is another matter. The most Clinton will say is that we need to watch Colorado to see what happens in terms of legalization, to which Trump echoes her, but adds that we need to stop sending people to prison for marijuana-related offenses. Chelsea Clinton has famously given speeches informing people that marijuana kills people. Johnson has been a supporter of marijuana, declaring it safer than other things, and has even profited from it in business. Stein is also supportive of full legalization. Hillary Clinton has received large campaign funding from the pharmaceutical industry, an industry which would lose profits if marijuana were completely legal. The WikiLeaks hacks revealed just two years ago Clinton said she would stand 100% against legalizing all marijuana if put in office. She has previously described it as a gateway drug. When it comes to abortion, Clinton, Stein, and Johnson are pro-choice. Donald Trump is mostly pro-life and also believes that women who abort should be punished. All candidates seem to be in favor somewhat of mandatory vaccinations, after all formerly questioning vaccine safety and supporting more research and vaccine choice or skepticism. In 2015, Clinton famously tweeted, the science is clear, the earth is round, the sky is blue, and hashtag vaccines work. But back in 2008, she said, I am committed to make investments to find out the causes of autism, including possible environmental causes like vaccines. We don't know what, if any, kind of link there is between vaccines and autism, but we should find out. And this is eerily similar to what happened with Barack Obama's then stance and sudden turnaround. That same year of 2008, when Clinton had also showed skepticism, he was quoted as saying, Some people are suspicious that it's connected to the vaccines. The science right now is inconclusive, but we have to research it. And then the same year Hillary Clinton reversed her stance, so did he, with nearly the same language. The science is indisputable. There is no reason not to, he added. Obama and Clinton didn't just make these reversal statements in the same year, they did so in the same month, too, February of 2015. Another odd similarity came from Bernie Sanders, who expressed support for everyone to be vaccinated in 2015, just as Obama and Clinton had. Back in 2014, he took a meeting with Robert Kennedy Jr. regarding vaccine safety. Kennedy wanted to bring what he felt were alarming findings on vaccines to the attention of the senator, to which Sanders informed him that he himself, quote, didn't know anything about this, unquote. Fast forward to the next year, when his official position became, unvaccinated children are killers. Jill Stein was saying vaccines skeptical and critical things, but backtracked after coming under fire this year. She has specifically criticized our regulating entities, noting how Americans have a growing distrust for the FDA. Jill is a medical doctor with a Harvard education who has spent time in her career looking at environmental links to our health crises. 
Gary Johnson this year also did a complete 180 on vaccinations, going from critical and pro-choice to four mandatory vaccines, much to the dismay of his libertarian supporters, and against what most believe to be a primary guiding principle of libertarianism, individuals' freedom of choice away from over-controlling government. Paid maternity leave is another hot topic. Hillary Clinton earlier this year promised 12 weeks of paid medical and family leave. For birth of a child, this would go to men and women. Donald Trump supports unemployment insurance, which would cover six weeks of paid leave for mothers. Many women today are able to utilize short-term disability benefits with their employer to receive this same level of care. Jill Stein wants to enact paid family leave. Gary Johnson is the only candidate who is plainly opposed to federally mandated maternity leave. On the civil rights front, Issues like gay marriage and gender identity frequently help voters decide which candidates they prefer. Donald Trump reversed his position from 2015 this year, now saying that he thinks gay marriage is a state's rights issue and that he would work towards getting the federal ruling overturned. Hillary Clinton is known for previously being opposed to same-sex marriage, but now she is not only supportive there, but she also wants to make it easier for transgender individuals to change gender markers on identifying documents. Clinton also supports transgender people using private facilities of the sex of their choosing. Donald Trump has previously been for transgender individuals using facilities of their preferred sex, but now is saying that should be a state's rights issue as well. Gary Johnson and Jill Stein both felt freedom to marry was a positive move for America. On trans using the facilities of their choice, Johnson seems to imply that it's a state's rights matter, while showing disapproval for HB2, notoriously dubbed the bathroom bill. While Stein spells folks with an X and says that, quote, transphobia needs to be shut down, unquote, as her response. The Obama administration recently erased sex-based protections for females when they altered the language of Title IX to refer to gender identity, a vague descriptor that indicates one's inner feeling of belonging to a biological class. This overrides the previous protection designed to give people with XX chromosomes and vaginas more opportunity, as it now applies to anyone. The Equal Rights Amendment for women, meanwhile, was never ratified. The billionaire Pritzker family, who funded Obama's political successes and is one of the richest families in the United States, includes male-to-trans member heir Jennifer Pritzker, who is worth $2 billion and has donated millions of dollars to transgender causes. Pritzker's name change and transition took place in 2013. Since then, the transgender lobby started gaining more political ground. Interestingly enough, another billionaire trans woman who is vocal in transgender rights, named Martine Rothblatt, is a transhumanist who believes that we will be able to live forever via digitizing ourselves and has made an artificial intelligence robotic clone of his wife. Rothblatt is hoping to achieve immortality and has been accused of caring more about uploaded and artificial people than organic living beings by critics. Rothblatt is listed as the highest paid female CEO in America, and both Rothblatt and Pritzker are males born in the 1950s from Chicago, and have fathered children. Could future presidential campaign issues in 2020 include machine or robots rights? So to recap, Hillary Clinton, supposedly partially supportive of decriminalizing marijuana, pro-choice, anti-vaccine choice, largely funded by the pharmaceutical industry, guarantees 12 weeks of paid maternity and paternity leave for new parents and other medical or care purposes, pro-gay marriage now, as well as pro-trans use of preferred facilities and easier gender change on documentation. Donald Trump, partially supportive of decriminalizing marijuana, anti-choice and wants to penalize women for aborting, ambiguously vaccine skeptical, wants unemployment insurance for up to six weeks only for new mothers, Gay marriage and trans-sexed facilities should be up to the states and not the federal government. Jill Stein supports legalizing marijuana, pro-choice, 
flip-flopped her position on vaccines this year, but probably won't support mandatory vaccination for enacting paid family leave, supports gay marriage, supports gender ideology, including trans rights to preferred facilities. Gary Johnson, known supporter of marijuana use, pro-choice, pro-mandatory vaccination, against federally mandated paid maternity leave, pro-gay marriage, pro-state's rights, but seems to be in favor of trans people choosing their private facility. For more on how presidential Green Party candidate Jill Stein feels about women's liberation, listen to Thistle Patterson's interview with her coming up later in this edition and under the extended interviews tab on our website. a clip of the song Liar by Bikini Kill. Here now is Niall Pierce with our feature report. While the world is focused on the 2016 U.S. presidential election, the hegemonic power exercised by the United States and its transnational state corporate allies is an important feature that often gets overlooked, lost in the subtext and array of debates, and the American public's fixation on things that only happen to them on a local, national level. There's the rest of the world's citizenry who, despite not being able to vote in the U.S. election, are frequently and intimately affected by the decisions made by the United States government on a daily basis. From Europe, to Syria, Yemen, Honduras, Haiti, Iraq, and the United Kingdom, the world is watching the reality TV show of the 2016 U.S. election. And this is obviously a unique election because aside from the drama, we also have a female candidate who is running for the highest office of the land. 
The presence, or more appropriately absence, of women in the highest positions of state governmental power is an ongoing challenge for feminists all over the world. That is not to say that women are not ever elected to political office, only that the instances of this happening at the highest levels are remarkably few and far between. Of course, there are examples within the U.S. of women getting close to the office of the president, Madeleine Albright, Condoleezza Rice, and most recently Hillary Clinton. Likewise in the U.K. and Europe with Margaret Thatcher, Theresa May, Angela Merkel, among others, all of whom are able to exercise considerable executive power. But for many feminists in the United States, there was a bitter irony and disappointment in the 2008 Obama campaign's choice of running under the slogan, Change. After 240 years of United States history and 44 presidents at the helm in the Oval Office, electing another man wasn't much of a change at all. Is it any wonder when we consider that white American women weren't legally allowed to vote until the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920, while our blacks sisters had to wait until 1965 to fully exercise their voting rights. The ugly truth is that women all over the world have been deliberately disenfranchised and systematically excluded from leadership positions and spaces of executive governance for as long as the existence of the modern nation-state. Prior to the French Revolution, women in the so-called Western world had no political rights, and while there were slight gains made afterward, the Napoleonic Code of 1804 destroyed those movements, effectively relegating women back to the end of the line again. Fast forward in time to the late 1970s and early 80s, it wasn't until then that women and women's issues were even considered worthy of being on the international relations agenda. In fact, peace theorists during that time embraced the concept of structural violence, but ironically and simultaneously also excluded women from those very discussions, despite their experience of having been direct victims of that violence. As of January 2015, women constituted only 22% of the world's parliaments and legislatures. Now, in 2016, there is a very real chance that the United States will indeed elect its first woman to the executive office of the president. There are, depending on whom you talk to, good and bad things about this. As a result of her candidacy and the obvious misogynist idiocy of her opponent, many important women's issues are being brought to the forefront of public awareness, which is good and will hopefully initiate positive changes, even if Clinton doesn't win. What is obviously worse, however, according to many people, is that Clinton, even though she is a woman, is not a true feminist because she is a war hawk, is blamed for instigating the violent regime changes in Libya, Syria, and for the murders in Honduras while acting in the capacity of Secretary of State, is not concerned enough about environmental issues such as fracking and the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership Agreement, among a variety of other things. Can a wealthy white woman be a war hawk and a feminist too? In order to help answer this question, we can consider two vibrant subfields within international national relations and political science calling attention to women's issues and the presence or absence of women in the power spectrum of global governance. The first is feminist security studies, and the second is feminist political economy, respectively. That is not to say that things are altogether theoretically harmonious in the halls of academia, however, or that these are the only two fields dealing with these important questions. Christine Sylvester in 2010 pointed out that within these fields, there are two main points of tension. The first being the concern to maintain the stance that security Security is a peace issue, as some venture systematically into feminist war studies. And second, the tendency to issue harsh judgments against feminists whose views challenge the accommodation of cultural difference. Many contend that true feminists are anti-war and anti-capitalist, anti-racist, peace-loving nature enthusiasts, and that Hillary Clinton does not represent these qualities and therefore does not embody true feminism. There is some research to support such claims, making the case through empirical data that women are generally less supportive 
perspective of the use of force than men. That is, women in both public and private spheres are less inclined to support going to war when presented with the possibility. However, there is also research that argues that there are instances when military intervention becomes a feminist cause and is supported by women. For example, a recent academic study done in 2016 compiled a data set of so-called humanitarian military interventions and women legislators from 1946 to 2003 and found that as the number of women legislators increased in positions of government over this time period, the impact and likelihood that a state would become involved in a military intervention was higher if the crisis was a humanitarian one. The research found that there were two issues of particular saliency for women legislators and their motivation to increase military spending. The first was the prevention of sexual violence, and the second, the protection of children. The article did not address the question of epistemology within these processes, however. For instance, while women legislators may have a proclivity to vote in favor of certain humanitarian military interventions, we do not know how the humanitarian crises were constructed for argument's sake, nor by whom. The article also seemed to take the concept of humanitarian military intervention at face value and did not provide a working definition for it. What is also notable is that one of the authors of this article is male, which may have affected the interpretation of the data and or framing of the research question. The article also did not examine the role of emotions in governments. Is there a possibility that women legislators are being duped by their male counterparts, superiors, or other knowledge creators in office who have vested interests in manipulating the system and are playing into women's emotions for votes? These are questions left unanswered. The article does, however, acknowledge not only the need for further research on these issues, but also the obvious point that military interventions may have the opposite effect, hurting more women and children in the process of war rather than saving women and children. So it goes in the halls of academia. Endless theories are one thing, whereas reality on the ground for real human lives is something else entirely and ever distant. Nevertheless, women and women's issues should be at the forefront of both domestic and foreign policy due to the crucial asymmetries of power that exist in the world, particularly at the levels of government, international trade, and security. Women and women's issues matter in foreign policy and security studies because we make up over half the world's entire human population. Society literally wouldn't exist without us. This goes without saying, but unfortunately, in a culture that devalues women and girls at every level, it still needs to be said. While it is encouraging that women are beginning to have a voice in both academia and the halls of power around the issues of interstate diplomacy and security studies, we would be remiss to go without acknowledging that these little victories have been incremental and slow, or that the dominant arguments are still very much reflective of and embedded within patriarchal conceptual frameworks and epistemological foundations, which is obviously a problem. Women are still regarded as an underclass in societies all over the world. Our voice, our choices, and our rights as human beings continue to remain marginalized and deliberately shut out of certain discourses that threaten the long-standing rule of men. A brief glance at the Wikipedia list of feminist political parties shows that while there are a few parties around the world today, very few, if any, have representation in levels of governance above local councils and civil administration. Why are there no feminist political parties that actively campaign for the highest offices of our land? This is obviously a rhetorical question, but the point is made. There are virtually no feminist female candidates representing feminist political principles successfully campaigning and winning seats in the highest offices of government anywhere. This is not an exaggeration. This is a fact. The answer is obvious, though. Consider the recent article in the UK's Telegraph titled, How Do You Get More Women Into Politics? 
ask an all-male panel. The article is important as it calls out the exclusionary practices of white male parliamentarians on the right and the left. Most panels are made up of men. The exclusion of women from spaces of governmental power is perpetuated by men that are often portrayed as progressive. However, when you consider the fact that the pornography industry is used by most males throughout all levels of the social hierarchy in every corner of the world, no matter what their political orientation, it's easier to understand why the multivariate oppression of women does not change. With women in power, men's daily oppression and consumption of women's bodies and natural resources might be threatened. God forbid a feminist politician versed in Andrea Dork can win the presidency, all hell might break loose. There would be no porn. Their entitlement to our bodies might be taken away. Crimes against women and children would actually be punished, heavily, as they deserve to be. Misogynist criminal justice systems would be dismantled, and state violence against women would cease to be an issue. Pedophiles would be done away with. Public bathrooms would be safe. In short, we would demand that they respect us, that they listen to us, that they include us, that they shut their mouths when we are talking, that they not interfere when we make decisions. But that is not where we are. In this environment, it's perplexing then when Hillary Clinton is touted by her campaign managers as a champion of women. Many radical feminists couldn't disagree more. In fact, many of her positions are all in line with white neoliberal capitalist patriarchy. Can a white wealthy woman be a war hawk and a feminist at the same time? Does such a thing exist? Can a woman whose policies are steeped in hypermasculine values and suffocate already struggling working class women and children in countries around the world be a champion of women and children at home and abroad. Some of us have our doubts. Some of us are more sure of supporting her. In either case, one thing is clear. We need our own movement, and we need it yesterday. We need it now. We need it beyond Twitter, beyond Tumblr. We need our own leaders, direct action in every corner of the world. We need to design new systems of governance and diplomacy. But failing all of that, we, at the very least, need our own party. We need our voices heard, and we need representation. We need a clear platform, because the way things are looking now is grim. I, for one, am not not satisfied with the slow snail's pace of our journey toward liberation. Are you? Cecil Pedersen recently spoke with Samantha Berg, direct action advocate and critic of U.S. electoral politics. Samantha is also a radical feminist journalist, and in recent years, she has organized anti-prostitution political events in the United States and Canada. The full interview is under our interviews tab on our website. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to be a radical feminist? Sure. Well, I grew up in New York, some of those years on Long Island, some of them a little north of the city. 
and some of those years in Brooklyn. I studied linguistics at a state university, and soon after graduation, I began volunteering for anti-poverty and women's organizations. And like many young women, you know, I felt the injustices that were done to women, but I couldn't articulate my thoughts until I was older, maybe about 20, and I started calling myself feminist, and I more actively sought out women's books and media. And at this time, I started learning how to do political work through a grassroots citizens lobby called Results, and they really taught me the mechanics of democracy, how to write letters, visit your representatives, organize for a cause, fundraise for a cause. Um, at that time, I was also volunteering on the media teams for the Green Party City Council candidates in Brooklyn and for Ralph Nader's campaign. Then I moved to Portland, Oregon in 2001 and started doing anti-prostitution activism in earnest. And since then, eliminating sexual slavery has pretty much been my main gig for the past 14 years. Mm -hmm. Most recently, I co-founded the radical feminist organization WOLF, the Women's Liberation Front. And can you tell us a little bit about your experiences as a poll worker? What did you learn from these experiences? Sure. Well, I was living in Brooklyn during the debacle of the 2000 presidential election between George W. Bush and Al Gore. And I was very politically active and leading a group for that citizens lobby results I just spoke of. And I was volunteering as a poll watcher in Manhattan. In Manhattan, where I worked, the polling area was very nice, and I helped one woman fill out an affidavit ballot because she didn't know if she had registered or not. But my partner had been doing his poll watching in Brooklyn, and the stories that he came back with of the things he saw were just uh, amazing. Everybody was talking about Florida's shady ballots, but what I saw from the 2000 election under my nose in New York, my partner witnessed broken machines, and I don't know if you know, but when any one part of a voting machine doesn't work, the entire machine is shut down. When the polls closed, there were still long lines of people standing in front who didn't get a chance to vote. Hmm. And we're talking about you know, just like one district in Brooklyn that nobody else in the country was talking about because they were talking about Florida, but I just think... This magnified times the rest of the United States as a citizen participating in democracy. Mm -hmm. It just got washed away like child's chalk. It meant nothing. Yeah, but I mean, there are so many polling places, and so doesn't it all come out in the wash in, in our democracy? So yes, there are always going to be shenanigans and people cheating and voting machines that don't work, but... In the long run, you know, this is the system that we have, and most votes get counted, and so doesn't it all kind of even out? I wish I could believe that anymore, but the more I investigated and looked into, name many people have forgotten, Diebold, the company that owns the machines. I mean, they own the machines, and the corporations own Diebold. And okay. so I, I, my faith that these votes are being counted you know, there's, there's so many levels between where my faith in democracy is and the mechanics of this system as I witness it that I, I don't believe it is a fair system by a long shot. I have a heavy amount of skepticism that presidential elections and the voting that goes into that much matter. The Electoral College makes everybody's vote a symbolic vote, an idea, a suggestion, but the people mostly men, who do make those votes for the Electoral College, they don't have to listen to the popular vote, as we found out, tragically, in the year 2000. If we could live in our ideal society, what would truly radical feminist politics look like in America? For me, 
you know, considering my life's work is ending prostitution specifically. For me, Radical Feminist USA looks like adopting the Nordic model that decriminalizes prostitution and criminalizes sexual predation. And so I support that in its entire anti-rape goal that I do. Um, I do criticize political systems while understanding they are necessary. And I also work outside those systems to accomplish my anti-prostitution goals. And I am a firm believer in direct action, and I teach workshops on radical feminist activism that are focused on achieving results in any way that works. And to me, that's what radical feminism in America could and should be. You are into direct action, and what do you think radical feminist women should be doing right now, or could be doing? What are some ideas for us as the election's hype reaches a boil? Well, just as you know, Barack Obama's campaign and subsequent election and presidency left this nation not more healed on a racist level, but less. You know, it caused more turmoil. There's more backlash. You know, women are experiencing this as well. Clearly, we know this is going on in a sharp focus. So what I would say to women is, well, first protect yourself in this environment. And so whatever you're going to do, be careful and protect yourself. But speak back. I think that is the first and for many women, the hardest thing to do is to just when that thing that makes you uncomfortable is said in front of you or that advertisement is put in front of you, talk back to it, write back to it. I, mm -hmm. I believe in writing on advertisements. You know, they put it to me saying, hey, Sam, let's have a public conversation about this. Well, I'm just responding to their invitation to have a public conversation about this. Carry a black marker <laughs> and be careful. <laughs> Do you think women's liberation is possible under the current two-party system? Hmm, well, that's a tough one. I, I do believe that it's not, which is why I wholeheartedly support efforts to increase the spectrum of political participation in this nation. It's been done very well in other countries. I don't hang my hope on whichever king or queen of the moment is sitting on the American throne. So as someone who was once deeply invested in elections as a tool for change, it's not so easy for me to just say, well, the whole system's rotten, just ignore it. You can't. Don't ignore it. It's there. But I think that U.S. elections are predecided at the presidential level and corrupt but not hopelessly broken at the state and local level. After reading more Robin Morgan's open letter to millennial voters, did it change your mind about anything? Oh, not as much as anybody who's ever tried to use fear to motivate me has ever changed my mind on something. Yeah. You know, I respect Robin Morgan's work and I remain unswayed by her plea. Um, she had written a similar essay when George W. Bush was running, and the points are very familiar to those of us who have dedicated ourselves to systemic change. Simply hammering on the negative isn't an effective strategy, especially for women who have been told our whole lives to fear, 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 fear. You know, that note is getting old. Well, I hope there are lots of millennial listeners out there that are hearing you today, Sam. What what can we say to our radical feminist friends who are pushing voting and kind of using that fear tactic? Well, I, I would first and always remind them that all voting is a symbolic act in the United States unless you're in their electoral college and very few women are in the electoral college. When feminists are told that women are just as violent as men, and somehow these men all manage to bring up the same example of Margaret Thatcher, you know, we have to remind them 
that England's woman leader from 30 years ago is an example of how the most privileged, wealthy women who want to be a nation's figurehead have got to agree to work for the corporate elite. That's the way the game is played. That's what the men do. They understand that. Radical feminists understand that individual women in leadership positions is not itself a game changer. Where we begin to see change is when 30% of government positions are held by women at all the levels, not just one select one at the top, that stands alone. Is there anything else you would like to say to our WLRM listeners? Sure. Well, um, well, as a woman and as radicals and as feminists, I trust that whether or not you vote and whoever you choose to vote for, that you know that voting has a minimal impact compared to the hard grassroots labor of making social change. You know, I wish it were as easy as pulling that button, filling in that little circle, but it truly isn't. And on Wednesday, November 9th, radical feminists are going to get back to work for women, and those are the efforts that are truly going to change the world. In 2004, Thistle Pedersen had the opportunity to march from Boston, where the Democratic National Convention was taking place, for 228 miles in over 28 days to New York City, where the RNC was held. She was with a mobile village of activists calling for grassroots local organizing on a daily basis as an alternative to U.S. presidential two-party system madness. After listening to Samantha Berg speak about the symbolic nature of voting in the presidential elections and the value of grassroots organizing and direct action tactics, Thistle wanted to share an excerpt from a song she wrote and recorded about the DNC to RNC March of 2004. The song describes a feminist fantasy where a group of women disguise themselves as Republicans, getting into the Republican National Convention and staging a theatrical direct action with eggs filled with red paint on national television. Conventions land in the USA, in Boston and New York, not too far away. So we unfurl our banners, we round up our troops, say, sirs, we do not buy it, not all of us are duped, cause the Dems are Republicans, it's all the same to us, war makers or haters, none of them we trust. So I put my sun hat on, grab my walking shoes, kiss my mall job goodbye. Say goodbye to the blues No leader at our center Organic to the core We walk the miles together Not afraid to be more than What they tell us is real We know it's a lie And it's up to us together To free ourselves, earth, water, and sky And we'll shut down their war truth to their lives, open up their gates of power and might, and take them by surprise. These crazy war makers, they have a grand machine, they call it TV, we all worship a screen. So maybe some of us could throw eggs filled with blood at our almighty ruler as he takes his torch with a shrug and no one will hear you in your final hour. But I can assure you that our sticky red egg holds power. Our sticky red egg holds power. Our sticky 
sticky red egg holds power and wealth shut down their wars speak the truth to their lives open up their gates of power and might and take them by surprise we gotta take them take them by over and it's back to our communities to the places we live with our gardens and trees it's not just the state it's the state of you and me and how we live with each other as we get ourselves free let's plant our roots far down in the ground so when we finally look up all we see are the birds in the clouds In April, Jill Stein, U.S. Green Party presidential candidate, visited Madison, Wisconsin on her campaign trail. WLRN's Thistle Patterson spoke to her about current issues, policies, and attitudes surrounding trans politics and the rights of girls and women. The full interview is under our Interviews tab. And where do you stand on gender identity legislation such as the Equality Act, the Federal Equality Act, that Tammy Baldwin, our senator, is one of the writers of? So tell me some of the details about that, because I'm not familiar with it in Interesting. Depth. Okay, well, um, basically, gender identity legislation makes into law protections for people who identify with oh. a gender that maybe they weren't assigned mm -hmm. at birth. Mm -hmm. And it's gender has actually been expanded out into many different kinds of gender. There's cisgender, there's agender, there's bigender, there's gender fluid, mm -hmm. there's transgender. Mm -hmm. So gender identity legislation protects people who identify with a gender. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. through this protection, it allows for biological males to enter into what previously were protected spaces for girls and women, such as bathrooms and locker rooms. Mm -hmm. When it comes to forced entry and then impregnation, which is something that women are vulnerable to just based on our biology and not how we perceive ourselves, mm -hmm. that's a problem because then, you know, men could, can and do, and there's evidence for this, get into women's protected spaces and then it makes women uncomfortable it makes them feel unsafe where i stand on this you know i haven't seen the evidence that men who transgender exactly they've got the same rate violate. of violence as the general male population in other words it doesn't matter if they transgender or they don't men are the perpetrators of most of the violence in our society we could probably agree on that sure. you know like rape violence for example right. most of it 90 upwards of 90 percent is men perpetuating violence against women so are you saying that allowing trans women who identify as women uh, into bathrooms is a dangerous thing yes that it, it mm -hmm. could be a dangerous thing right and it's not just bathrooms it's also prisons women's prisons for example, that are sex segregated because there's a huge record out mm -hmm. there. Do your research, mm -hmm. get online, go to mm -hmm. Gender Identity Watch of 
sex offenders who are now transgendering so that they can get into women's prisons, you know, and homeless shelters too. So it's not just bathrooms or locker rooms. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'd like to see is the evidence that there's actually problems that are taking place there. I yeah, have, like I'm I said, not, it's, it's yeah. online. I can send you a video that's mm -hmm. like a compilation mm -hmm. of case after case after case of men who have transgendered and are sexual predators and are violent. You know, I've heard hypotheticals about that, but actually... You haven't seen... I have not actually seen evidence of that, and there is so much discrimination against people who are transgender that, you know, I think we have a real burden of, what should we say, a responsibility to ensure equity and the lack of, of bias. Put it this way, there's the potential to violate people sexually or physically and to commit violence regardless of where you are, you know, whether you are in a bathroom or anywhere else. Predators come in all shapes and, and sizes and we need to feel like we have safe spaces regardless. Mm -hmm. and Especially in sleeping quarters for homeless women and in prisons for mm -hmm. women who are in prison. Mm -hmm. You know, because, I mean, that takes it to a whole nother level. Yeah. It's not just, like, yeah. walking down the street. <laughs> right. And, and I think, you know, maybe the way to sort this out is, is that we need to ensure people feel safe and that to understand that being a male doesn't make you a predator and being a transgender woman doesn't make you a predator either. And that people who are not trans and people who are not male are also capable of committing violence. So, you know, mm -hmm. we but need to be in a peaceful society. If you look at the statistics, it's, it, it is not women who are committing these heinous acts of sexual crimes and violence. It's men who are committing these acts of violence. So... Uh, it's true, but it's not all men. No, it's not. It's, it's and not. there's a term for that in radical feminism. It's mm -hmm. namalt. Mm -hmm. Not all men are like that. Mm -hmm. But then that's a, a derail mm -hmm. from looking at and focusing in on the problem. I mean, not all white people are racists, but that's also a derail mm -hmm. to looking at the problem of, of racism. I think there are derails no matter which side you cut the issue on, you know. And if you are guarded against males because they have a greater propensity for violence, you're also than, you know, doing an injustice to males who are not prone to violence. You know, my, my point is that we need to enhance safety and uh, peace and human respect throughout society in many ways. And there are many ways that we drive violence, you know, across genders, between genders, within genders. Right. Oh, but anyway, thank you so much, yeah, Jill well, thank Stein. You. Yeah, good talking <laughs> with you. Important question. So speak out, speak over, speak under, speak through the noise. Speak loud so I can hear you. I want to know you. I want to hear your real voice. I want to hear your real voice. Your real On Tuesday, November 1st, WLRN Sarah Barr Fraz spoke with Cindy Sheehan about the role of voting in maintaining the people's illusions of democracy within the American empire and what women can do to make change. 
Sheehan is author of Myth America, 20 Great Myths of the Robber Class and the Case for Revolution. My name is Cindy Sheehan, and my son Casey Sheehan was killed in Iraq on April 4, 2004. And after he was killed, I, I was fired from my job because I took too much time off. And I had a lot of, I needed too much, I needed time off. You know, my son was just killed. And so I had, uh, I thought that was like pretty callous of them to do that. But anyway, so I started networking with other people who I tried to find other family members of soldiers that had been killed in Iraq that thought the war was wrong as we did. And so I just started networking and I started doing whatever I could to expose the lies of why my son was killed and why so many other uh, U.S. troops and Iraqis were killed, and then eventually, about 15 months after Casey was killed, I ended up in Crawford, Texas, and we camped out there for the whole month of August. My question was, what noble cause? Because George Bush said they died for a noble cause. I said I was going to camp and stay in Crawford next to his ranch until he met with me, and he never met with me, so we were there the whole summer. So one thing I'd like to ask is, is there currently a peace movement to speak of in the United States, in your opinion? So that's a really good question really started to die down in the end of 2006, 2007, when the Democrats took back the majority in the House of Representatives and Nancy Pelosi became Speaker of the House on the promise that she wouldn't hold George Bush and Dick Cheney accountable. And and then when Obama was elected, the movement practically died because seeing it appears that most of the people who were standing in solidarity with us in 2005 and 2006 were more anti-Bush than they were anti-war. And now that we've had a Democrat for eight years as chief, you know, uh, what are they called, commander-in-chief, leader of the U.S. war machine, that there's been there's been practically no opposition to Obama's policies, which are just really an expansion of Bush's and Clinton's before him. So really, there is essentially very little principled movement in the United States that's against empire, not just against Republican wars. That's definitely true. And do you think that same sort of problem is what's keeping the feminist movement from really engaging with anti-war ideas as well? As, As somebody who I would have to consider myself have kind of evolved into a radical feminist. I I see and I differentiate between liberal fem- feminists and radical feminists, and I think that liberal feminists are more they're more partisan for the Democrats, and and I, I believe radical feminists are not. They're radical feminists uh, see liberation struggles and they're in solidarity with those liberation struggles. So I think that that's absolutely true and I already see it in 2000. You know, since I don't know how long Clinton, Hillary Clinton has been running for president. I don't know how many years, I guess since 2008. I see that. I see that. You know, we're, we're being accused of being misogynists or sexist if we're not supporting her because she's a feminist, uh, but not I don't see her as the same kind of feminist that I am. 
Definitely. So regarding elections in general in the United States, I want to read a sentence that you wrote in 2012 and recently reshared on some of your social media. You wrote, here in the United States, we live in a dictatorship that has an orderly transfer of presidential power every four to eight years. That orderly transfer of power is part of the delusion of democracy that helps keep the dictatorship of the robber class in power. So what do you think is the actual function of elections in the American empire? Is it all about the illusion of democracy? Well, I think it is. I think it's an illusion to to give the people of the United States some kind of, you know, some kind of false belief that they have a say in the government and that they, yeah, I definitely think especially presidential elections are set up to give the people of the United States the illusion that there is democracy, that we do have a choice. And I also wrote in that same book where that came out of called Myth America, the 20 Greatest Myths of the Robber Class and the Case for a Revolution that, you know, we don't, the, the people in the United States, they barely say, oh, you know, Iran doesn't have fair elections because the Ayatollahs pick the candidates. Well, I think that we have the same kind of a system picking our candidates. Wall Street, the war machine, the Ayatollahs of the corporations and big business. I, by the time people vote on November 8th, whoever wins, if it's Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, these uh, institutions are going to win. And the American people always lose. And I was just thinking about this the other day. I was thinking when I turned 18 back in 1975. I was so excited that I finally got to vote. My first election was in 1976. And I was really, you know, I was really conditioned and propagandized to believe that I had a say in this government and that the, and I was a member of the Democratic Party and I didn't go and vote. I wasn't, I didn't consider myself voting for the lesser of two evil. I considered myself voting for the greater good. Of course, that illusion starts to crumble and the older you get, the more you know about things. But after my son was killed, I just felt so betrayed. I felt like our idealism and, and our good intentions and my son's idealism and good intentions and joining the army are just absolutely betrayed. And if you step out of line, if you're one of the people that step out of line and say, hey, wait a minute, there's something going on here, there's something wrong, then instead of instead of people engaging with those ideas and instead of mm-hmm. like there being some kind of investigation, the person that steps out of line and says, hold on a second, <laughs> something, something fishy here, we're thoroughly attacked and marginalized. And, and then if you're a woman, it's even worse. I just, you know, have been so distressed over people saying, saying things to me like there must be some man pulling my string, whether it's telling me what to say, whether it's George Soros or Michael Moore, I know, or somebody like that. It just infuriates me because I always tell them, oh, you mean a woman couldn't have her own ideas? Or a mother, or a mother, someone who's just a mother couldn't speak for herself. And it's just, (laughs) just so infuriating to just, there's so many ways that this empire knows how to silence people, and if people can't be silenced like me, then they know how to, you know, take your take your greatest strengths and turn them into weaknesses. And, mm. you know, and then we have these two people that we get to vote for. To me, they're just like the crap of the crop. They're not the cream of the crop. They're just, there's a, a 
a political theory called caucusocracy, where the worst people rise up to the leadership positions, like in that movie. It's where, do you know what I'm talking about? Where no, it's the United States, they start watering their their crops with Gatorade instead of water, and they all turn, uh, Idiocracy, <laughs> it's a great movie. Oh, I it. really, yeah, I highly recommend it. So, so yeah, I don't know what your original question was, because I think I went totally no, off, of, okay. off of the subject. You definitely spoke to how democracy is a lot more complicated and maybe not all there in the way we think it is. Sort of talking about what we can do to change the way things are, what do you <clears> think stands in the way of alternative or third parties becoming more popular in the United States? And have you seen a change in how viable those parties are over the past decade? I've run for office third party and independent, and I know know the immense obstacles that are put in front of third parties or independents to even get on the ballot. When I ran against Nancy Pelosi in 2008, we had to wage a year-long campaign just to even get me on the ballot. So you spend a lot of resources and a lot of volunteer time, you know, and a lot of energy getting on the ballot. And so it, to me, it was miraculous that we even got on the ballot. For us, ballot access is a huge obstacle. You have to have, and especially if one is running for president, all 50 states, each state has a different uh, criteria for getting on the ballot. I think if it's a federal election, especially in a, if it's a presidential election, I believe that it should be standardized across 50 states. You know, some some states are almost impossible to get on the ballot now. Some states are much easier. And I really think that if someone you know if someone qualifies uh, constitutionally, then you know there should be some show of you know, some output of energy to get on the ballot, but nothing like the obstacles they put in front of us. And, of course, the corporate media is a huge obstacle to third-party or independent candidates. They just uh, are, they're ignored in some sense, but then if they start getting a little traction, then then they're attacked. And take Jill Stein, for example. The things I think she's strong on, see what I said earlier, they take your strengths and make them weaknesses. <laughs> and so, and that's just the people of the United States. The consumer of corporate news believes that, you know, um, people's strengths are our weaknesses, and then the the main candidates, the Democrat and Republican Party, that their weaknesses are strengths, and it's just really an upside-down world. I don't see third parties or independents gaining traction because of this idea that if we don't vote for Clinton, then we're going to get Trump, or if we don't vote for Trump, then we're going to get Clinton. So that's really important, I think, about how difficult it is for third parties and alternative parties to sort of gain traction. What would you say to people like Bernie Sanders who sort of assert that it's better to stick it out within the Democratic Party and try to change it from within and hold Democratic candidates and presidents accountable? How has that worked in the past? <laughs> well, that that hasn't worked. That hasn't worked at all um, forever. I I believe that the systems in the United States, imperialism, capitalism, militarism, you know, corporatism, all of these systems are diseased and they cannot be reformed. So what uh, someone like Bernie Sanders does is keep good people that want fundamental change engaged in the system. And so most of the people who 
you know, he ran against Hillary Clinton, and he he never really went after her. He never targeted her. He never really attacked her. And there's so much to target and attack. I think his most of his voters were against Hillary Clinton. But as soon as he lost and as soon as he rolled over, he rolls over a good, I would estimate, 90% of his voters into the Democratic fold, and they will be voting for Clinton. And, and Bernie Sanders participates in the, you know, we can't let Trump win kind of right. um, kind of paradigm. And so I think that that change isn't going to come from within, and it's not going to, going to come in presidential elections either. I think it's valid to try and do party building, maybe even building for revolutions. Uh, locally, I think down-ticket items especially propositions are very important to work for and to be um, involved in. But I really think that, like I said earlier, whoever wins next Tuesday, we are going to lose. We have to stop thinking (laughs) that, you know, over 300 million of us are always going to be on the losing end, that we're going to let a small percentage, a very tiny percentage of of the oligarchy or whatever you want, the ruling class in this country, that we're going to let them continue to steal from us and steal from our communities and to destroy the planet and our children's future. We have to stop letting that happen. And I think like the the, the growing protest in, in North Dakota and supporting that is far more important than, and I'm not saying don't vote because I, I vote, I have a net, I've never not voted, and right. but I don't think I think that that is the 15 or 20 minutes it takes me to walk to my polling place and vote and walk back. That's the energy that should be expended. Everything else should be grassroots on the streets, in the trenches, at the barricades level of activism. Definitely. Going back to the idea that no matter what, the American people will lose. When we think about people in other areas of the world. You know, Trump has made statements that he would do things like kill the families of suspected terrorists. How different are those um, statements of being willing to commit war crimes? How different is that from what Obama and Clinton have actually done? Right. I I think that, I've, and I've said many times that Donald Trump's rhetoric is extreme and it's uh, not helpful, but Clinton and Obama's actual policies and actions are far worse. Obama has killed people and their families and innocent people by drone. He has kill list every Tuesday. You know, they he, yeah. he bragged about being a good killer and they go over a list of people who they're going to assassinate without a trial. He's expanded um, the Bush Bush wars into from I think four countries to seven or eight now and He's uh, expanded the, the drone bombing program 500 times more than Bush's. And Hillary Clinton has never seen a war that she didn't approve of, that she didn't vote for. She's she's very bellicose. She's very imperialistic. And, and she was Secretary of State and a senator. And like you said, she spoke in favor of voting for these wars. She voted for the wars. She supported a no-fly zone in Libya, responsible responsible for killing tens of thousands of Libyans, eventually destroying that country. She supports a no-fly zone in Syria. She supports 
regime change in Syria, in fact, regime change in Russia. I think she's uh, very dangerous. And you said earlier about holding their feet to the fire. That doesn't happen. I, when Obama was running, people, and I, in 08 especially, when he, it was such a phenomenon. And so I supported Cynthia McKinney of the Green Party that year, but, you know, in 08 especially, they were saying, oh, just get him in and then we'll hold his feet to the fire. So three days after he became commander in chief, he does his first drone bombing in northern Waziristan, killing dozens of innocent people. And I said, okay, well, it didn't take him very long to become a presidential war criminal, so let's start holding his feet to the fire. You know what they told me then? Give him a chance. Oh, my God. Yeah, so this BS never, it never flies because they're so concerned if once a Democrat gets in power, of a Democrat remaining in power. And so you can't criticize them, you can't protest against them, you um, can't treat them like you would a Republican doing the exact same things. I think that's definitely evident. So this was a question about Clinton that was proposed by another woman on our WLRN team. And I think it has an obvious answer, but it might be important to talk about anyway. Can a woman be a war hawk and a feminist simultaneously? Or um, we talked about the difference between radical and liberal feminism. Uh You know, talk about the impact of Clinton's policies on women around the world. Well, it seems like any time a woman has risen to be prime minister or president of a country, that person hasn't been peaceful. <laughs> that person hasn't promoted peace. They've been very uh, warlike. And Cl- Hillary Clinton, her policies, I mean, wars, Who who's hurt more by wars besides women and children? Right. And so to just that is the bottom line. If she truly cared about liberation, I don't think her feminist struggle even is for liberation of women. It's for power. It's to get power in in such a white male supremacist society. It's to grab that same kind of power. It's not to liberate women. And it's, of course, not to support liberation struggles against U.S. imperialism around the world. What's your advice for women who want to follow in your footsteps and oppose the endless war and the military-industrial complex? Well, I think, first of all, we have to divorce ourselves from the notion that partisan politics is the way to go, that we should be working within partisan politics to change from within. We have to, everything seems like all activism is to support this white male supremacist society. We should be working to tear it down. Our goal should be to tear down this white male supremacist imperialist society and build something new where everybody is liberated, where um, 100% of the people have the say, and where women, not just here in this country, but women around the world, feel safe. Definitely. And, you know, what what would you say in just in daily life to people who say, you know, you're throwing your vote away, have to vote for the lesser of two evils? What's your advice for how to respond to that well? First of all, I call them the evil of two lessers. And I think that personally, after my son was killed, John Kerry was running for office. He was reporting for duty, you know, saluting, saying that he would fight the wars harder and all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. I vowed that I would never vote 
for another pro-war candidate ever. And so to me, if I voted for Clinton, who is definitely more more pro-war than Trump, like I would never vote for him either. But if I voted for Clinton just because she's a a female Democrat, that would be throwing my vote away. Clinton has not earned my vote. If Clinton wanted my vote, she'd be doing things a lot differently than she is. So I'm going to vote for somebody who aligns more closely with my principles, somebody who deserves my vote and somebody who's earned my vote. Then Trump or Clinton are going to be president for sure, whatever. And as soon as one of them is elected, more than likely, either one of them is going to be indicted for something. So it's very interesting times we live in. But at least we can look at ourselves in the mirror, and at least I can tell my grandchildren, I did everything I did every day to try to make this world a better place. I would would rather be loyal to my principles than to the principles of this empire. And now we are happy to present WLRN's featured commentary about the U.S. presidential elections by Sekhmet Shiaul. It stands to reason that if a woman like Sarah Palin, Michelle Bachman, or Carly Fiorina was elected president of the United States, the same women who now excitedly await Clinton's coronation as a symbolic feminist victory would not be celebrating. Liberals and leftists generally understand that conservative politics are no less anti-woman and anti-feminist when women harbor them than when men do. A woman on the far right who believes in traditional gender roles, hates homosexuality, wants to see abortion outlawed, and dreams of the U.S. becoming a Christian theocracy is not a feminist simply because of her femaleness, nor would her ascension to state power be any less of a blow to women's liberation and well-being than if she were a man with the same agenda. A female politician being elected to office is thus not a feminist event in and of itself. Only when a woman who has genuine feminist politics, the kind of politics that seek to free all women from male tyranny, is elected to office can we celebrate that individual accomplishment as a victory for women as a class, because only in that scenario do women other than the politician herself stand to benefit in their daily lives as female human beings. So why do scores of otherwise reasonably intelligent women, liberal and leftist women who would never laud a Sarah Palin presidency as a feminist victory, make the mistake of believing that a Hillary Clinton presidency will be? What about Hillary Clinton's political platform is feminist if we define feminism in radical terms as a movement for women's liberation from all forms of male oppression? 
the likeliest explanation for women falsely construing a Hillary Clinton presidency as a feminist event begins with the fact that most women, including most women who identify as feminists, are not in fact invested or interested in global female liberation for men. Furthermore, most feminist-identified women in the U.S. subscribe to the popular brand of individualistic identity politics, now essential to liberalism, that denies the existence of social classes having collective experiences, and thus denies the need for political action and progress that both involves and benefits the class of women rather than individual women themselves. Thus, these women who frame a Hillary Clinton presidency as a feminist event do so under the pretense that Hillary Clinton intends to challenge the male supremacist, misogynistic patriarchy that operates socially, culturally, and legally, and is capable of doing so from the office of president. They never pause to consider whether or not there is evidence to support this belief or question whether any position within the male state can realistically be used as a tool to bring it down. They do not ask themselves if it's even possible for any individual to advance within the state's political system without complying to its agenda and, and without the state changing and corrupting the individual folded into it. Cultural patriarchy, male supremacy, and misogyny exist in a symbiotic relationship with the male supremacist state. It always has. When we talk about Hillary Clinton as the United States' potentially first female president, after 44 men have led the country over a period of 227 years, we need to ask ourselves what it means about the state, as an organized political entity, that this is the history of leadership. The United States existed as a country, a political and governing institution, and a military force for 131 years before female citizens won the right to vote, and 96 years after the 19th Amendment was passed, only 19.4% of U.S. Congress seats are held by women. While liberal policy, represented by the Democratic Party, can offer women meager benefits, such as abortion protections, it would be ridiculous for us to believe as feminists that policy authored and supported by an overwhelming male majority is meant to truly challenge, let alone destroy, male supremacy, patriarchy, and misogyny at the state or cultural level. Liberal and leftist men would have us believe that because they aren't conservative, they aren't misogynistic, or actively participating in the survival of patriarchy as a system. Most women with liberal or leftist politics believe them, which is easy for them to do when they themselves are not feminist, and often anti-feminist. They have bought into the lie that liberalism is pro-woman simply because it doesn't look anything like conservatism on the surface, and does a great job of keeping its misogyny subtle in comparison to the openly crude, now politically incorrect style of the right's misogyny. What few women manage to advance their careers as politicians do so by cooperating with the male state, not threatening it. The male state now armed with unprecedented surveillance capabilities, will not allow politically threatening figures to infiltrate it openly. Remember, this is the same United States government that purged our society of communists in the 50s, then engaged in undercover sabotage and political assassinations of civil rights revolutionaries through the FBI's COINTELPRO operation in the 60s and 70s. Not only does the state prohibit radical leftists, including radical feminists, from grabbing institutional power, it actively seeks out and destroys anyone who poses a legitimate threat to its agenda. 
while the presence of women, particularly liberal or left-leaning women in government, does agitate male power and obstruct the old-fashioned sexism that conservatives would like to resurrect via policy, female politicians cannot be more than an agitation to the male state if they have any hope of winning federal elections and re-elections. This is true if for no other reason that electoral politics is intertwined with male wealth, a politician's chances at power only as good as her connections and funding. No woman in politics is a better example of this than Hillary Clinton, the wife of a former president who has the richest men in the world in her Rolodex and enough political clout to reward them for their, don for their donations to her campaigns. If she had both the intention and the capability to jeopardize the power and wealth of these men, they never would have allowed her to get this far. As difficult as it has been for a woman to get as close to becoming president as Clinton is, it's still too easy for it to be a viable method of toppling the patriarchal state. If we consider her platform and political career without taking her sex into account, if we slapped on a man's name to the same platform and resume, how can we brand Clinton a champion of women's liberation? Sure, she's pro-choice on abortion. She advocates for pay equity and paid family leave. She claims that she's going to introduce a program to tackle sexual assault on college campuses. And one of her arguments for gun control is the rate at which women are murdered in domestic violence situations by male partners with guns. But she has not, in her entire political career, acknowledged male violence as the distinctly male problem that it is. Her foreign policy record speaks to Clinton as a warmonger following the tradition of male presidents who precede her, including Barack Obama, for whom she was Secretary of State. She and her husband have accepted exorbitant donations from countries with a track record of brutally violating women's human rights, granting them political favors in return. Clinton, like her male predecessors, doesn't seem to care that war always leads to women in occupied countries experiencing rape, violence, and death, to say nothing of poverty and, des and destitution. If she did care, she would reject military interventionism wholesale, but her Secretary of State record and her most recently stated intentions for Syria demonstrates her conformity to this historical U.S. pattern. In the past, she has expressed her support for enlisted women who survive rape and sexual assault in the military, yet earlier this year she came out in favor of women being required to sign up for the draft. She, like every other Democrat who has picked a side on the matter, has indicated that she will back the transgender lobby without qualification, which by itself entails the total destruction of legal sex-based protections for females. She may think women deserve equal pay for equal work, but she's a corporate capitalist through and through, which means at best, she'll make sure that women are as equally poor, unemployed, and exploited as the men in their economic class, while her rich friends and donors rest easy that they won't suffer tax hikes or a less free market than what they're used to. The central problem of women framing a Hillary Clinton presidency, or any female presidency, as a feminist victory is not solely couched in their failure to hold Clinton's policies to a strict feminist standard. The crux of the problem is women's unwillingness to examine what we can realistically expect from the presidential office and from the male state itself in terms of cooperation with women's liberation. The president does not write laws, and lawmakers do not have the power to legislate beliefs, feelings, prejudices, or human nature. 
While patriarchal male supremacy and misogyny are absolutely codified in the law, institutionalized via electoral politics, and reflected in majority male leadership and government, men's hatred of women and the power that men wield over and against women have never existed exclusively on a legal level, nor are they perpetuated solely by the male-dominated government. We can look at countries like the United Kingdom, Germany, Bangladesh, Liberia, and others and see that a woman heading the state government does not make patriarchal male supremacy any less real or reduce the overall misogyny present in the nation's culture. Presumably few women who support Hillary Clinton believe that she is the world's first miracle worker in this sense, but their insistence that her ascension to state power is a victory for all women implies that they expect something more of her than symbolism, and the same female-friendly liberal platform that any number of male democratic politicians can claim. Yet if we scrutinize Hillary Clinton's actual policies, past and present, or the male state and the office of president themselves, we have no good reason to conclude that women as a class in the United States or the world will experience a reduction in male misogyny or even their own internalized misogyny because of a Hillary Clinton presidency. Women's liberation will never be handed down from the state or by one individual hero who somehow managed to game the system enough to acquire power within it, then use that power against the system. If history has anything to teach us about political revolution, about women's revolutions against men in particular, the lesson is this. Power concedes nothing to individual rebels, only to collective, organized resistance. And that concludes our 7th edition of Women's Liberation Radio News for November 3rd, 2016. I'm Niall Pierce. Thanks for listening. I'm Sarah Barfraz. Thank you for joining us. And I'm Jenna DeCuardo. Thanks for tuning in. And I am Thistle Patterson, producer of this 7th edition WLRN podcast. We are looking for women interested in creating a weekly or monthly WLRN talk show program. So if you'd like to develop that branch of our team or help to develop that branch of our team, please click on our Apply to Work for WLRN tab on our website. And thank you for your financial support. Please donate on our website so that we can continue to bring you more quality programming from the lesser heard radical feminist perspective. We are Volunteer Powered Radio. Thank you for tuning in. And I'm Elizabeth McEwen. Stay tuned next month for Edition 8, focused on feminist motherhood, hosted by your team at Women's Liberation Radio News. That program will be released on December 1st. 
We welcome listeners' questions and feedback, so feel free to send an email to our address at wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. But how will we find our way out of this? What is the antidote for the patriarchal kiss? How will we find what needs to be shown? And then after that, where is home? Tell me, where is my home? Cause gender